I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. The thing that I feel like I've learned in the last year, especially, is that there's like kind of an opposite loop where somewhere in there you break the cycle. You know, that could be anywhere, really. Put the phone down, just cut it off. Yeah. (laughs) Compared to like even a year ago, it's like I really I have zero desire to look at the the feed of any social media. I I just I actually don't want to. That's uh, I I want to get to that point. That's my (laughs) that's my North Star right there. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. My guest this week is Jenny O'Dell, an artist and writer whose first book became a New York Times bestseller and something of an aspirational manifesto for this show. It's called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. It should be fairly obvious by now that I have absolutely no idea how to do nothing. I have never been able to sit still. I've had a fear of missing out on just about anything since I was a kid. I've been a workaholic and a political news junkie since graduating college, and I rarely relax for more than a couple hours. Emily might say a couple minutes. But I picked up Jenny's book this summer when I was feeling particularly anxious, exhausted, and just burnt out by how much time I was spending staring at screens, scrolling through bad takes, going from one awful news cycle to the next. And it completely changed the way I think about how I spend my time. As Jenny explains in our conversation, the title is more tongue-in-cheek than literal. Nothing isn't really nothing. It's just not the hyper-connected, hyper-productive existence that so many of us have become accustomed to. In Odell's view, stepping out of that world isn't about quitting social media or disconnecting from the internet completely. It's about learning to redirect more of our attention toward the people and places around us. I found Jenny's perspective especially valuable because she's got a different background than most of our guests so far. She's an artist and a nature lover who's found offline fulfillment watching birds or just sitting in a local park. We talk about how her book was a reaction to the 2016 election, why she thinks that social media news cycles are like sleep deprivation torture, what it means to resist the attention economy, and her advice to me on how I can start doing a little more nothing. As always, if you have questions, comments, or complaints about the show, feel free to email us at offline at crooked.com. Here's Jenny O'Dell. Hi, Jenny. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Um, thank you for taking the time to do this. I, uh, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. I, I bought your book a few years ago, but I didn't read it until last September uh, for one of the very reasons that you wrote the book, which is that it's become harder for me to pay attention to anything longer than a tweet. <laughs> but yeah. uh, uh, you know it happens I but I finally took it on a brief vacation in September I left my phone in the hotel room and then I just found myself like highlighting full paragraphs of the book so I, I really wanted to thank you for writing it because it's it's changed the way I think about how I spend my time that's awesome to hear yeah <laughs> you start by uh, telling the story of of why you wrote how to do nothing which was partly a reaction to the 2016 election. Can you talk about how that reaction led to a book on 
resisting the attention economy? Like, what was the connection to to Trump winning? Yeah, I, I mean, it kind of started out in an almost happenstance way um, in that I live about five minutes away from this municipal rose garden in Oakland. Um, and I mm-hmm. found that around that time, uh, I was just, without really thinking about it consciously, I was going there. I, pretty much any chance that I could get, I was teaching at the time, so I had a little bit of a flexible schedule. But I was just going and kind of like, you know, thousand yard stare, like sitting in the, in the rose garden. And what has yeah, happened? <laughs> um, and I, and then I think after a while, I started to wonder why I was doing that and why that felt so different from the rest of my day. A lot of which was like, you know, doom scrolling, um, feeling like a lot of anxiety and information overload and not being able to process anything. Um, and so it kind of just started with that, like sort of movement from here, you know, where I am in my apartment to this park. And, you know, the more time I spent there, the more I started to think about how the values that were embodied by this garden were very different as well. Like it's, uh, you know, it's volunteer maintained. Um, It's a space that's very valued by the community, but it's not really productive in the ways that we would, you know, normally use the word productive. It doesn't, you know, create a profit. Um, You don't get any results from going there that you could sort of quantify. Um, It just sort of gestures towards this other kind of value system um, other ways of valuing experience, other ways of being like, I go there, I'm just a person, you know, I'm not a producer of content. I'm not a consumer of content. Um, and so I just happened to be spending a lot of time there thinking about that. And then I was asked to give a talk at a conference called IO. So I wrote this talk called how to do nothing to give at that conference in the summer of 2017. That is about those things that I sort of thought about and learned about being in the garden I did not expect it to resonate really with anyone outside of that conference um, necessarily, certainly not as much as it did. Um, And I also didn't expect it to turn into a book. Um, That was not my idea. That was suggested to me by someone who was at the conference. Um, And so, yeah, here I am. Um, And it, it just came out in Korea. Wow. That's nuts. That's (laughs) So for people who uh, haven't yet read the book, how do you define doing nothing. Okay. So it's obviously not literally doing nothing. Right. That could be very interesting too, <laughs> that you could do that. Um, you know, but I don't necessarily mean, although now during the pandemic, maybe this is different. I didn't necessarily mean lying on the floor, staring at the ceiling. Right. Um, but um, I, it's sort of tongue in cheek, right? It's like nothing is supposed to mean nothing from the point of view of a very sort of capitalist, cut and dried, you know, objective way of thinking like, producing X and Y results. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of to go back to the garden, the maintenance of that garden from the point of view of producing something looks like nothing. There's so much work that I've learned from being there. There's so much work that goes into roses all through the year. You have to do all this stuff, even in the winter when there's like nothing, it doesn't look like there's anything going on. Yeah. Um, And so there's all this stuff that falls into that category, like care, you know, caregiving, um, maintenance. I kind of, I have a fraught relationship with the phrase self-care, but you could put self-care in there as well, right? Right. Um, So really nothing just means things that don't sort of appear in the value system that we typically have when we talk about productivity or, you know, like producing value. Well, it also seems like it's defined in opposition to sort of the, the habits that the attention economy 
has sort of incubated in all of us. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Which is, I know the subtitle of your book is Resisting the Attention Economy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think in the context of the attention economy, it's so reactive, right? It's like, do you like this or do you not like this? Do you hate this or do you not hate this? And then there's like this other option of like, what if I just wasn't there? <laughs> what, like, what if I... What if I just walked away from this question? Or what if I thought about it some more and put it in some historical context or something? What if I talked to a friend about it? Do I really need to be in this state of constant reaction? Which I think is what I was feeling around the election. was like, I, I had gone so deep in the sort of the rabbit's fur, right? That I couldn't get any perspective on, on myself. Like, I honestly think it's a really interesting exercise even now to like, when you're in that state, just like, Pretend you're a fly on the wall and look at yourself. You're like probably in a little ball, you know, and your face is really strained. I think about this all the time. Sometimes I catch myself because when I'm like really into Twitter or I'm reading the news and like hours pass, I think like if I was looking at myself right now, I would just see someone staring at a screen, scrolling, and my jaw would constantly be clenched. <laughs> I do, I do <laughs> that a lot too, especially when I'm like yeah. stressed out. And I would look like a, a I would I would look like a crazy person. Like it would not, yeah. it's not. Yeah. Um, so it's like, why do I do that to myself? I mean, what what were your so, so much of this is about social media and the internet, um, which is what our show is about. Like, what were your social media habits like when you first started thinking about uh, why you should try to change them? They were. So they were pretty bad by my current standards. Mm -hmm. I, I will say in my defense that I taught digital art at Stanford. So I had to be kind of yeah. aware of things that were happening. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of my friends were making new media work. So we're kind of like in that world. Um, but I definitely, you know, it'd be really interesting to go back and look at like journals from that time. Cause I actually have no idea. I, I have no idea like what my screen time was at the time. Um, but I definitely was feeling like, it's like, I'm sure many people know this feeling. It almost feels like you're sick, right? Like you're just like your heart rate is kind of weird or you're like, you feel too hot or um, you just like, it's just bad. It's bad. You feel really bad. And I it got bad enough that I think I was trying to feel my way out of that. Like it finally reached a point and everyone has their point, I think. <laughs> Even if you come back later, but there is a point where you're like, this feels so intuitively bad that I need to change something. It's a little too like either if you've ever eaten too much in a setting or drank too much, like it feel like you it feels fine while you're doing it, but like the second you stop, you just start feeling bad. <laughs> start yeah. feeling, you know, it's like there's a hangover effect to using social media that even as you keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, it's just like at some point you don't feel very fulfilled as you just keep trying to scroll more and more and more information. It's like too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of a weird comparison, but, um, I, during the pandemic, I played this video game called Stardew Valley. It's very popular. Okay. I don't know if you've ever seen I'm it. I'm not a big video game person, but yeah. Okay. But okay. <laughs> so it's, a um, you know, you're like living on a farm and you have your little farm or whatever, but the days in the game are seven minutes long, which means that you, always think you have time for another day. Seven minutes, right? It's not that long. Yeah. And the game only saves at the end of a day. So if you start a day, you have to finish it because otherwise you're going to lose everything that you did. Right. 
And when I started playing it, my boyfriend was like, you got to watch out. Those days are going to get you. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And now I do, or I'm like, oh my God, you just always fall into the next one. And then what was interesting to me was that it's exactly physically, it's the same feeling that I remember from before. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is just the same thing, but like devoid of like, maybe like some forms of like terror, <laughs> but, but in terms of like how it actually just like feels yeah. in my head and like in my body, it kind of really reminded me of that. And I was like, oh, this really is just like the hamster wheel, like dopamine thing. Like here I am, it's the same. I'm trying to figure out when it all changed because just before this interview, I was thinking about when the iPhone first came out, one of my close friends got it first and I was asking him about it. And it was like, what's the big deal with this thing? Is you know different than a typical cell phone, you know? And he said, we will never be bored again. He goes, that's how I can explain the iPhone. He's like, now that you have an internet in your pocket, whether you're standing in line, whether you're waiting around, whether you're by yourself, there will always be something to do. And at the time, I don't like being bored. No one likes being bored. And so I thought, this is perfect. What a wonderful invention that I'm never going to be bored again. And now it's like a careful what you wished for kind of thing. <laughs> because yeah. now, like, yeah. like, what do you think the difference is between doing nothing and being bored, which has more of a negative connotation? Well, actually, it's funny you should say about being bored. I guess maybe this is like one way of illustrating it. I was recently given something that I would describe as something where you're never bored. And it's um, it's a jeweler's loop. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen a jeweler's loop. It's no. like a little, I wish I had it so I could show you, but it's a little um, 10X lens that folds out and people use it to look at moss. It's oh, like wow. one of the common uses for it. So a friend of mine who had one and was like raving about it and saw how much I liked using his, he got me one for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And you're just going to have to take my word for it or find somebody who has a loop okay. because you could look at anything. Like I, you could look at like this tissue or I don't know, like anything like, you know, moss, obviously, but also like rocks or your blinds. It is just endlessly fascinating. Like it's not going to be what you think. And it has this sort of element of surprise mm. that I think we're all very addicted to. Right. Which is like you have to get really close to something with the loop. And then all of a sudden it like pops into focus and it's yeah. like this plant that you thought was smooth is like really hairy or uh, something, you know? And I remember when he gave it to me, I was like, I'll never be bored again. I'm like, <laughs> it's exactly what you're describing. But I think the difference is, I mean, there's a lot of differences. Like one is um, it fills me with like wonder instead of dread. Yeah. And another really <laughs> big difference is it's, I'm looking at something that's actually in front of me, um, not something that is, you know, being said by a stranger far away out of context, right? Like one is hyper contextualized. It's in front of your body, like in your eyes. And the other one is really not. Yeah. And I think that those like lead in two very different directions. Well, that brings up, you know, you, you argue that the internet and the idea of social media aren't inherently bad. What do you think is bad about them or what has become bad about them? Uh, I mean, there's obviously, I mean, I think like the biggest thing is, the whole sort of business model of social media runs on constant maximum engagement, Mm. which already is a problem. Um, And then both, I think, in terms of the ways these platforms are structured, but also just kind of unspoken rules that people kind of learn about what gets engagement tend to favor certain types of expression, Mm. um, like outrage. Um, There's a lot of like, I find like mic drop 
kind of statements. You know, it's not really inviting dialogue. Um, it's like every statement has to be a mic drop. Yeah. Um, and and lot so of, it just a lot, of, a lot of louder for the people in the back kind of stuff. Yeah, and I and I'm like I'm I'm so sick of that. I'm just, so, it was making me hate myself because it was like, I think that's what I realized, like, you know, in changing my habits was like, you're going to feel the way that, that people treat you, right? Like you hang out with friends who, who treat you the way that you want to be seen. So if you're spending all your time reading statements that no, they're not personally addressed to you, but you're reading them that way. Right. And they're all talking down to you. And they're all like, you know, written in this kind of like sanctimonious shaming tone, like, you're going to develop so much shame. That's what happened to me. I mean, there's so many, you know, problems with it, but that's, I think that's a really big one. And unfortunately, I think that just kind of emerges from like the structure of the, the implicit goal of this game is to get the most engagement. Right. Like, yeah, of course you could go on there and, and not do that, but that would be, I don't know, that'd be like going to a soccer field and like not trying to get the ball in the goal. Like you're just kicking the ball around or something. <laughs> I mean, one of the, one of the many places in the book where I found myself nodding furiously was um, where you compare uh, social media-driven news cycles to the uh, sleep deprivation tactics that the military uses on detainees. <laughs> and you you write, you write that. Uh, quote, one of the most troubling ways social media has been used in recent years is to foment waves of hysteria and fear, both by news media and by users themselves. Whipped into a permanent state of frenzy, people create and subject themselves to news cycles, complaining of anxiety at the same time that they check back ever more diligently. Why do you think, what is it about us that keeps checking back in, even though it makes us more anxious? You know, I think I have an even worse opinion of this than I did when I wrote the book. <laughs> I think I, I thought it was like, well, no, I still do think it's like an emotional thing of wanting to wanting to know what's going on and then wanting to be seen and heard, right? Like wanting to be connected to other people, especially when something dangerous is going on, right? You, that's a natural thing, right? But, I, but I've sort of come recently more to think that it's like, like I said, it's just the sort of like hamster wheel, like dopamine thing like it just turns out that like we love checking things yeah <laughs> like it could really be that simple it's just that um that's just something that our brains like to do it's like a loop that you get into yeah and, and it's like it's sort of like this addiction to new information all the time like has anything changed yeah. is anything new is there an update which i don't know why i thought about this a lot like why do i always need some kind of new piece of information to keep going? Why can't I just be like happy with what is right now? Yeah, well, and sometimes I wonder if that's not even necessarily a problem. Like, okay, this could, you know, this is just me, but I am obviously a nature enthusiast, right? Mm. Like I write about that in the book. I think, you know, people might think of being outdoors as like very peaceful, it's neutral, like it's quiet, like nothing's going on. It's not like that to me. It is just absolute mm. riot. Um, it's, it's like, you know, and, and even more if you have this loop thing, right. But, yeah, but even right. without the loop, um, uh, or binoculars or whatever, I think, and I think that's what I was trying to get at in the book was like that you can train your attention, um, to be able to, uh, look for these kinds of changes and uh, what, I, I don't want to call them updates, but there are, you know, I'm looking at my window right now, there's update is like a guy just walked up the street right you know so like maybe there's nothing wrong i i was just thinking this you know last week i was in the mountains and i was like maybe this is like the one place where i'm never bored 
is actually here. Was it always like that for you? Or you, you talked about sort of training your attention um, to focus on, on on those kind of changes? Or was this just, were you always just a, a nature enthusiast and this came natural to you? I think I... I don't know necessarily about the the nature context. I think I sort of I'm familiar with that from childhood and I I came back to it. Hmm. But I think what I I always had was I've always been very curious. And that's just sort of an orientation that, you know, no matter what you sort of direct that at, you're going to be looking closely and waiting for things to change and seeing that things are changing. Yeah. Um and so I actually, you know, it's like you hear people say, "Oh, people need to learn how to be bored." Again, and I I don't know that I agree. I think it's more just like you should embrace your your desire to learn new things and perceive new things. And maybe the problem isn't that. The problem is the the context in which you're applying it and the fact that it's being exploited by right. a social media platform. Right. But in itself, I think that's like a lovely thing. It means you're like alive and you're paying attention to things. Offline is brought to you by Karyuma. It's the middle of winter and time to get real about layers, lining, everything that's going to keep you warm and comfortable when you head out the door. Karyuma is always coming up with ways to evolve their sustainable sneakers, like the brand new weatherproof high tops they just launched a few weeks back. Karyuma says cozy shouldn't come at a cost to the planet. That's why they created Katuri and Akatherma, winter boots disguised as high tops made with 100% vegan and recycled materials and produced in a way that's ethical and transparent. One thing you should know about Karyuma is that they're obsessed with comfort. Even their insoles are lined with vegan shearling, whatever that may be. When you can leave the parka at home, Akka is just right. 15,000 five-star reviews, tens of thousands of weightlisters. Even your favorite celebrities love this versatile, crazy, comfortable shoe, like Tommy Vitor. If Akka looks familiar, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. This is Karyuma's new school take on a classic sneaker, crafted with durable canvas and ultra-soft, responsibly sourced suede. Karyuma ships all their sneakers free and fast in the USA and offers worldwide shipping and 60-day free returns. They deliver right to your front door using single-box recycled packaging. For a limited time, offline listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your pair of Karyuma sneakers. Go to kariuma.com slash offline to get 15% off. That's kariuma.com slash offline for 15% off only for a limited time. Offline is brought to you by Magic Spoon. It's the new year and Magic Spoon is perfect for meeting your goals, whether it's eating healthier or saving more time in your morning routine. How's your Magic Spoon experience has been? As always, it's been fantastic. You know that I love the peanut butter Magic Spoon. It's a go-to snack in the evening when you're trying to avoid a a horrible dessert decision. I could use some right now. It's four o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. Yeah. I could really use a bowl of... I need a... Cereal o'clock. I'd be into a new flavor. Wow. I'd be into a new flavor. I don't eat anything but the peanut butter. I mean, I love the frosted. I love the cocoa. Mm-hmm. I love the cookies and cream. You I bet. love the peanut butter, like you said. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just need to mix some uh, peanut butter and uh, and uh, maybe and, so and, and cocoa. Maybe so. Little like a little, you know, a little variety. peanut butter chocolate Spice kind of, of thing. life, you know. Zero grams of sugar, thirteen to fourteen grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs in each serving, only one hundred forty calories a serving. It's keto friendly, gluten free, grain free, soy free, and low carb. You can build your own box. Available flavors to build your very own custom bundle are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies and cream, and maple waffle. Go to magicspoon.com slash cricket to grab a custom bundle of cereal and start your new year off right. And be sure to use our promo code cricket at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember... Get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash crooked and use the code crooked to save $5 off. 
Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Offline is brought to you by Helix. Everybody's unique, and Helix knows that, so they have several different mattress models to choose from. They got soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattresses great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. And even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. Love it. Took the Helix quiz. Mm-hmm. What'd you get? You got that Don, Don Lux. Lux? I have a Don Lux. It's a firm mattress. It's great. I've been sleeping better. It's very comfortable. It's very plush and nice, but it's also firm because I sleep on my side and my stomach. Very much recommend it. Helix is awesome. But you don't need to take our word for don't it. Don't take our word for it. Number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. How about that? How about that? Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. Hmm. Just go to helixsleep.com slash crooked, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Of your life. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash crooked. I'm interested in your distinction between connectivity and sensitivity. Um, can you talk about that a little? Yeah, so that, I should say, is not my distinction. It's uh, a theorist, Franco Bifo Berardi, made this uh, distinction in a book called After the Future. The way he summarizes that is um, basically connectivity, you could almost think of it as like ports in a computer, mm. right? Like it's either compatible or it's not. And if it is compatible, the information goes through. So with people, that would be like, you know, you and I have the same preferences on paper, where you know we uh, we sort of checked all the same boxes. So when I recommend something to you, it's not even really like you just sort of accept it, and I didn't change in the transmission of that information, and you didn't change. Um, so that's pretty cut and dried, and the, and it happens quickly. That can happen really quickly. Um, sensitivity is more like you have these two kind of like oddly shaped, maybe incompatible um, people, bodies, whatever you want to call it, um, entities. And they are communicating, but it's much more of a process. Like the, they both might change in that interaction and the information might change in the interaction. So like, you know, really easy example would be if you have a long conversation with a friend or someone, you know, who you respect, but you don't agree on something and it might be really fundamental. So the example that I give in the book is someone who is Catholic, Mm -hmm. um, and and then I'm basically I don't know what I am anymore. But I, at the time, I described myself as an atheist, yeah. right? And that's how that's kind of how she saw me. And we would have these long evening conversations. It was at a residency about science and um, and religion and like the meaning of life, you know. And we didn't we didn't come to what we would call like an agreement, but we did have an exchange, and we were both changed by it. And my mind was changed, and her mind was changed. So that would be an example of sensitivity obviously not favored by social media (laughs) (laughs) the understatement of the century when i get to that part of the book that's when i was like you know sort of furiously highlighting because i'm interested in a lot of how this connects up to to politics and 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 democracy and and i think like there is no sensitivity on social media like it's just not built for those conversations but i think sometimes there's the illusion of that, right? Because we're all connected to each other via social media. And so we're having these conversations, but you don't really get to have conversations with sort of the nuance or the context where you're allowed to disagree or you're allowed to change people's minds. Or you try to change people's minds. Like 
that sort of all disappears. And I kind of wonder what that does to all of us. Yeah, it can't be good. I <laughs> I mean, I, I suspect that people approach social media with a lot of fear um, about how they look. Yeah. Um, because that's, you know, what social media is all about. And there's so much about, you know, likes and, you know, upvotes and downvotes. It's so numerical, right? It's like a score and you want your score to be good. And it's almost like a credit score or something. <laughs> and yeah. So like, I think people are already kind of approaching these topics and spaces with like a lot of fear and a lot of defensiveness. Um, and I'm just so struck by the difference between the way like a disagreement might play out in social media versus like the times that I've had close friends or like just someone I know say something to me that only maybe even like years later, I realized that was like a very deep critique of something about what I thought. Like yeah. that it's really like, it's not a sort of surface level thing, right? It's like, I think you're wrong about something. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, I think your, your politics are wrong. Um, but it's, but it, but when I when I go kind of remember that moment, it that's not how it felt. It felt like a conversation. Like it felt like a respectful conversation where I learned something. And it's like only later do I realize like, oh, actually they were, that was actually someone like seriously disagreeing with me. <laughs> you know? Well, and it, and it is like incredibly rare to find that these days. And I know that because, you know, like I had done some episode the other, the other couple of weeks ago and you know, the the negative comments were like five words in a tweet that I just sort of I brushed off at this point or I didn't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And then you remember like someone did like a, you know, seven part tweet thread was like, hey, I, I went into this conversation open minded, but I didn't like this and I disagreed with this. And I sort of like took that critique to heart. Right. And I thought, I understand that and I want to learn from that. Yeah. And that's interesting that the person pointed that out. And it's just so much more effective than someone saying like, I saw that you did that. Do better. And then that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, what are you supposed like, to do I, with that? What am I supposed to do with that? That's not persuading me. <laughs> yeah. And I honestly, I think that's part of the mic drop effect, right? It's like, it's like you almost don't think about how the person continues to exist after you said something. Right. right. Yeah. It's like, I'm just going to leave this here and walk away. That's like, <laughs> that's what everything is, right? It's like, no, well, I'm still here and I need help understanding this. Like, right. Yeah. So you want, yeah. I first learned about your book because uh, it was on Barack Obama's book list, you know, my former boss. And I was like, oh, I'm, I was wondering why he was so into this book. And then when I got to this line in the book, what if we spent less time shouting into the void and being washed over with shouting in return and more time talking in rooms to those for whom our words are intended? I was like, that's why Barack Obama really liked <laughs> But I do think it's it sort of the, the way that social media operates really is just a lot of people shouting past each other all the time. And there's just not a lot of sort of one-on-one -on -one conversation, but that's the way we are most of the time. Yeah. And I, and I just, I get that frustrates me because I think if you look at it from a kind of like crass, like numbers point of view, right? It's like if you if you make a statement and it gets, you know, thousands of uh, whatever retweets or likes or whatever, like that is a measure of something, right? Right. Um, it's not nothing. But then I think about things like, you know, if someone, this is really like overdetermined example, but like if someone wrote, made a zine, right? Yeah. And they only mailed it to... 20 people, but those were the 20 right people. Like, and those are 20 people who are going to like 
sit down and spend time with this and talk to other people about it. Yeah. Maybe write something in response and then they respond and then you get somewhere, right? There's traction. I don't know. Like, that's a different way of measuring, I guess, like impact. Like, I don't even know what to call it, but like, that's also something that feels like substantive to me. And I'm kind of more and more interested in that and, and bored with the other thing. Yeah, well, it's it's intentional and it's designed to try to persuade people to make people think or act differently, which I think is sort of the basis for, you know, a democratic society. I mean, we we've been talking a lot about sort of the effects of, of social media and, and overconnection on individuals. Right. It can make you anxious. It can make you feel bad. It can make you distracted. But you point out that um, a social body that can't concentrate or communicate with itself is like a person who can't think or act. And I have been thinking about this a lot more is like. What does it mean for the country as a whole if we're just all so distracted all the time? Um, and what does that mean for social movements? What does it mean for labor movements? What does it mean, you know, like for 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 civil rights movements? Um, because I think, as you point out in the book too, that sort of collective action requires discipline and organization and 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 a lot of attention. And and I wonder if we're sort of losing that capacity. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to say. I don't I don't know, but I I mean I was just reading an article actually a couple hours ago where um you know, it was basically organizers talking about this and saying that, you know, like they were comparing it to going door to door. Um and having conversations with people and finding out that you know, uh if you actually tell someone what something is beyond a slogan, they'll oftentimes maybe not agree with you, but it'll be something other than the like, no, like door yeah. in your face. Right. Um, and it's, and so I think, yeah, definitely like the capacity to listen is, is probably getting eroded. I mean, I talk about deep listening in the book, which is Pauline Oliveros's term um, from music, but deep listening requires like a stance basically that is, would, you know, be described as almost like passive or non-judgmental or whatever, but it's basically like a, like, let me actually like hear this thing first <laughs> before I jump into like analyzing and all of that. Um, not mm-hmm. to say everything needs to be listened to, but just that, you know, that there's, if you want to have an encounter that involves like that sensitivity and the exchange um, that requires you not to do the mic drop, basically. <laughs> So you wrote this book a year or so before the pandemic, and I've seen some people say that it was, you know, well-timed to a period where doing nothing was forced on many of us. But I actually found that being stuck at home during the pandemic made doing nothing in the way you define it even harder. So like I was glued to my screens and social media, and it made like even a news addict like me feel even worse than usual. <laughs> um what what was your experience like during the during the pandemic? What has your experience been like since I guess unfortunately we're still in it? Yeah, it's well, I feel like summer of 2020, I kind of started approaching a point that was reminding me of the, the moment that had spurred how to do nothing, where I was like, oh, this feels familiar, you know. Yeah. And that was a um, that was a rough summer. That was like the the, the yeah. protests plus the wildfires in California plus the pandemic yeah. it was just everything right, and I, <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't walk because the air was too bad and yeah. it was just yeah I was feeling very very sort of trapped in that and so I had sort of like 
moment number two of I can't do this. And uh, ever since then, you know, I I'm on social media. I will like check for messages um, and, you know, I'll kind of. Yeah, I'll dip in once in a while because there are important things like the fact that um, people who read my book often connect me to other things that I would like to read. That, you mm. know, it's like I, I find out about this other stuff that's in conversation with what I'm doing. And that's really important to me. Um, however, I religiously avoid feeds of all kind, all kinds. Like, I will not look at the Twitter feed. I will not that's, look at Twitter moments. Wow. I will not look at the Instagram feed. Um, I can't look at my Facebook feed because I have something called Facebook Newsfeed Eradicator, oh. which I highly recommend. Yeah. that's If I went on Facebook, um, I would use that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I... I I barely look at Facebook anymore because that's turns out if you don't have a newsfeed, then there's no reason to be on it for more than two minutes. So, mm. yeah, so that's I, I kind of had I had a, almost like a second moment of reckoning. I'd love to hear your thoughts on like what you think we can all do to resist the attention economy, both as individuals and as a society. I mean, I think it's important to point out that you don't you don't believe we should all just stop using social media. Um, you know, you, you point out that you're less interested in a, a mass exodus from Facebook and Twitter than a mass movement of people regaining control of our attention and redirecting it together. Can you talk about what that means and, and, and what it might look like? Yeah, I think it's maybe helpful to think of it in terms of like feedback loops. So mm. there's a there's a bad feedback loop. And then I like to think there's a good feedback loop. The bad one is the one that is is sort of like being exploited right now, which is um, there's a lot to be upset about and scared, just like deeply frightened, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's so many sources of dread. And we're also, you know, a lot of people are still pretty isolated, mm -hmm. you know, or they're more isolated than they would be. So you go to social media because you want to feel some connection and you want to feel, maybe you want to feel validated. Um, you want to feel, feel seen and recognized. You go there, you don't get that. You get something else. Right. But something else that you get makes you feel more lonely and disconnected and have more anxiety. So you go back. And I mean, I've literally read papers in like travel journals where like tourism people like know about this loop and they name it. And really? they're like, we need to figure out a way to use, use that to drive ticket sales for like when people <laughs> see other people's vacations, like they're going to have low self-esteem. So like, how do we get in there uh... and have there be a button where you can like buy your ticket, right? Like this is very known. Um, yeah. So that's that's the bad that's the bad feedback loop and it's sort of self-reinforcing. The thing that I feel like I've learned in the last year especially is that there's like kind of an opposite loop where somewhere in there you break the cycle. You know, that could be anywhere really. Put the phone down, just cut it off Put or phone, something. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook news feeder eradicator, whatever right, it is. Whatever right? you have, yeah. Or you get a loop, get the <laughs> get the jeweler's loop and go outside and look at a bush. Somewhere you break the cycle and then you get the opposite, which is like you find other sources of meaning and belonging and being seen. Mm. And that makes you feel more stable. And then because you feel more stable, you don't feel the need to go to social media anymore. Because you're not going to social media anymore, you feel more stable, right? Like this is what's kind of been happening to me. Like I have a joke that my my social media is, um, you know, on uh, iMessage, you can pin like people to the top of your iMessage. Yeah. So I have like nine people and they all have different animal photos. And so I was calling it like animal net. And when something goes viral on animal net, it's just me sending it to every single person <laughs> <laughs> like one at a time. And like, 
I get news from AnimalNet. Like people tell me about stuff, you know, like in whether it's like something happening to them or the news or something that they saw that was funny. Like, yeah. you know, it is a little mini kind of like, and some of them are group chats. So, um, and I find that like, I actually get what I wanted. I originally wanted from that and from, you know, interactions with just individual people. It could be like friends or it could be other writers. It could be whoever, you know, mm. um, either like one-on-one or kind of like small groups. And, you know, a lot of that's been on my phone because it's the pandemic, right? Like, but it's very different than sort of broadcasting or being on on a feed. And it's really like, it's it's amazing. Like I, I compared to like even a year ago, it's like, I really, I have zero desire to look at the, the feed of any social media. I, I just, I actually oh. don't want to. That's, uh, I, I want to get to that point. That's my, that's my <laughs> North Star right there. <laughs> Offline is brought to you by Keeps. A lot of things should not follow you into the new year. <laughs> I can think of a few myself. All the bad vibes from 2021. How about that? Yeah. How about that? You know what should follow you into 2022? What? Your what hair. Yeah, it should follow you. Your hair. Or it could follow the water in your shower down the drain. Yeah, don't. Don't pick that one. Keep it. More than 50 million men in the U.S. suffer from male pattern baldness, but Keeps can help. Keeps offers a simple, stress-free way to keep your hair. Convenient virtual doctor consultations and medications delivered straight to your door every three months. You don't have to leave your home. There are low-cost treatments that start at just $10 per month, and Keeps offers generic versions. (laughs) It's basically, how do you want your hair to leave your house? Through the front door with you or through the sewer? That's your options. Is this for offline? Yeah. yeah. There's discreet packaging and <laughs> hey, proven friends. results. Don't even know who's on this episode. <laughs> Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors. Prevention is key. Treatments can take four to six months to see results, so act fast. Ladies, gents, and everyone in between, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash offline to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps.com slash offline to get your first month free. keeps.com slash offline. Offline is brought to you by Future. Future is the new workout experience that provides unlimited personal training and custom workouts for one fixed price wherever you like to work out, all through the Future app. When you sign up for Future, you're paired with your own fitness coach who custom builds a workout program that is delivered straight to your phone every week. You'll hop on a FaceTime call with your coach and blueprint out any goals, injuries, where you like to work out, and any equipment available to you. Your coach will then develop a comprehensive training plan taking into account any and every factor you'd like to fit in. Your coach will be there to keep you motivated by making sure there's variety in your workouts while also making progress toward your goals. Future has over 3,000 five-star reviews in the App Store. Future members love the experience and say this is the most consistent they've been with their fitness in years. Here's Hmm. one five-star review. It's from me. Oh, wow. Five stars from John. I started using Future in the new year when they became a sponsor. Uh, Have the app. They send you an Apple Watch. What? Yeah, and I was like, why do I need an Apple Watch for? Oh, you'll you know find what? out. You need it for future. You'll need it. Uh, I got my personal trainer now, my coach, Gabe. Told him what I'm looking to do. Told him the equipment I have in my pool house. And now I go there uh, every morning. I don't have to think about signing up for classes. I don't have to about scheduling something with the personal trainer. I have the workout in my phone every morning. I do it with the equipment I have. It feels great. I love it. Great. If you're ready to invest in your long-term health and wellness, you can get started with your future coach right now with 50% off your first three months at tryfuture.com slash crooked. Again, that's tryfuture.com slash crooked.
I, I'd been thinking even before reading your book that I sort of wanted to redirect more of my attention away from social media and towards real life interactions with people. I'm, I'm an extrovert. I, I, I get energy from other people. I, I hadn't thought about redirecting my attention toward the place that I live, uh, which you write about a lot. You know, so much of your book is about your connection with nature. What is it about nature that you find important and fulfilling? I think, I mean, maybe the most basic part of it is is kind of illustrated by the part where I talk about the crows, although I realize that crows are getting out of hand in a lot of places. <laughs> I was just reading, or someone, I think three different people on AnimalNet sent me an article about like using like lasers to control crows Anyway, because the crows are getting out of hand in San Jose. But, um, you know, I have that that description in the book of, like, um, crows, you know, can recognize human faces. So I befriended these crows. The crows are looking at me. I'm looking at the crows. Crows are not human, but they're, like, regarding me in some way, right? And it hmm. was this reminder that I am also, you know, an earthbound animal who, you know, to, from their point of view, I sort of emerge from this little box every day and then I go back inside. And so it's a very um, kind of, it's like it almost like moves the center of gravity out away from you. Mm. And I was finding that very therapeutic at the time because the other thing that I think social media does is it kind of like hyper stimulates your ego. Like it, you really get into like the center of your head <laughs> and it's like very dense in there. And for me, just being reminded that there are these like kind of other societies that are just outside, like. I've lived in the same neighborhood for long enough. I know like the bird neighborhoods. Like I know that like the chickadees are always in that one tree. Or like mm. I just I just noticed um two weeks ago there's um a sapsucker, which is like a type of woodpecker that makes these little holes in a very dense pattern. Um it's always in this one tree between 10 a.m. and noon. And I'm like, there he's at work, you know. I pass this bird and it's very inspiring to me because then I go home and I like do my work. But um, I think it's just something about being reminded of a, a different context for yourself, right? Yeah. Like, a, And it's pretty insistently like physical context. I can see why it might be useful because I, you know, I've been trying to go on walks where I like, like don't look at my phone the entire walk and I don't listen to anything either, right? I don't even listen to a podcast. I just want to walk and look around. But sometimes, at least at the beginning, I noticed that as I'm walking, I'm still thinking about all the things I would think about if I was scrolling through Twitter, right? So I'm thinking about political issues of the day. I'm thinking about things I have to do. Like your mind's still racing. And I think part, you know, you write about this too. I think when you're focusing, when you redirect your attention on something else, like nature, like birds, like the trees, right? Then you sort of get out of your own mind and you don't just leave the the scrolling and social media behind. You leave sort of all the stuff that comes with it, <laughs> which is yeah. thinking about all that shit constantly, which continues to give you anxiety, even if you're not staring at the screen. Yeah, totally. And I think it also has like very concrete lessons, at least that that I have learned from observing and learning about ecology in particular. Um, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is that in ecology, there are, you know, very few hard boundaries. So mm. like there are bioregions and they have identifiable characteristics but there's not like you're in oak savanna and then all of a sudden you cross a line and you're in a redwood forest, right? Like it just doesn't yeah. work that way. Um, you also find out that like everything is affecting everything else all the time. And like for me, that was meaningful because I'm biracial and I like really resonated with that idea that you could have something be 
um, multiple with like identifiable parts, but they're not um, so easily pinpointed. Hmm. And I think actually it's really, it's interesting to bounce back and forth between contexts. Like if you take those lessons and then you come back to something, you know, like a political situation, right? Maybe you look at it differently. Like you see, Mm. for me, it becomes easier to see things like, oh, this is a knot of strands, one of which started in like the 1800s or Mm. something, right? Like something that's a little bit more complex than like the Twitter moments of the day. Like it just allows you to like zoom out or sort of like change your focus a little bit and, and like appreciate and like sit with complexity because I think that's everywhere. I mean, one of one of the first things I did after I finished your book is I started looking up books about the history of Los Angeles, which is where I live. And like I moved here in 2014 and I always think to myself, oh, I just moved to L.A. And I've been here eight years now, seven, eight years now. And because I live such a hyper connected life and I'm working so much and I'm online so much, I, I was like, I finished your book. And I'm like, I don't even know that much about the place that I live, <laughs> like the history yeah. of the place that I live, you know? And I, I wonder like the more that we're online and you can be sort of online anywhere and, and the internet is just this big global space that has like a lot of nothingness around it. Um, you do sort of forget that like you live in a physical place <laughs> with history yeah. and tradition and culture and nature and all that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's wild. Yeah. Although I should point out that, you know, similar to the fact that, you know, I say that social media just as, as the idea of like a network of people who are in communication is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. Mm. I think similarly, you know, let's say like, let's say you move to a new place and you want to learn more about it. Like the internet is actually going to be a huge <laughs> use right. to you, right? Well, like, that's, that, that's where I looked for yeah. books. <laughs> yeah, about right. LA, and, yeah. And I, I learned, I mean, I really got off the ground by using iNaturalist, which is the app that, you know, it's basically Shazam for plants, right? Like you take pictures yeah. of plants and my, it my friend tells you what they app, are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. It's like what I've been waiting for. Um, that's utopian technology to me, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's like, again, to, it's almost like the, the loop versus the iPhone again, right? It's like, are you using it to actually become more engaged with the place that you are or are you using it in the opposite direction? Yeah. And certain platforms or apps or whatever are kind of uh, will push you in either direction. On a societal level, are there policies or collective actions you think we should take in order to help resist the attention economy? You mentioned in the book that you know a lot of people have jobs that don't give them the privilege of trying to do nothing because they're so busy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that is kind of something that I am taking up, um, thinking about specifically about time because, you know, one really obvious response to how to do nothing as a whole, as a book is like, that's great, I don't have time. And like time is like a sort of very obvious dimension in which like some people have more affordances than others. So anything, you know, that that opens up more time or not even more time, but like gives more temporal autonomy to people, I think. Um, because to be able to, you know, be curious about things and, you know, go for your walk and whatever, meet with the local birding group, you know, you have to have the time and the resources to do that. And um, I think that's one of the things that I wish that I had made clear in the book was, was that, you know, distinction between someone who finds it difficult to do nothing because, you know, they're so steeped in like achievement culture or whatnot. And then someone who really actually just does not have control of their time. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, do you think that this great resignation we've seen, uh, you know, it, throughout the course of the pandemic, a lot of people, you know, sort of quitting their jobs, looking for other things to do, has to do with some of the challenges that you wrote about in the book? I mean, one sort of overlap that I definitely see is, you know, I talk about kind of like the pause in the book, like when you take a pause and you you shift your perspective. Like I talk about my dad taking two years off of work when he was in his 30s. And again, you know, that's a very privileged thing to do. But he he kind of had like all these epiphanies during that time about mm-hmm. himself and his work and what he wanted to do and uh, and what it actually took for him to you know, be creative and have like purpose and meaning or whatever. Right. So, I mean, I have no way of knowing really, but I, my sense is that maybe that happened for people where it's like, it's this forced pause. Everything suddenly looks weird. Um, right. Like things that were once familiar looked very strange. Mm. Um, like even things like buildings getting used for other things. Um, and and that's such a destabilizing moment. And I think that, that can be really scary, but it can also kind of like shake loose these things that you took for granted or not even necessarily took for granted. You were just so busy going. You yeah. had to take it for granted. There wasn't a time to to stop and think about it. And now you have to stop and think about it. And and maybe, right, like maybe your, your work situation is a little different. Like maybe you work from home and you realize how shitty your boss is or something. I don't know, because something has changed. Right. And and something becomes clear to you. And then maybe also, I don't know, but because we've all been living with this hyper awareness of mortality, like people are dying. There's this like this possibility of dying was just in the air. Then maybe that also people were thinking about like, I have one life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and what am I going to do with this one life? Am I really going to spend it doing this and 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 not just staring at this all day? So I don't know. I that's my kind of guess. Look, I think that's, I've had that experience. I think it's a combination of the trends that you've been writing about, which is so everyone being hyper-connected on social media, and that leaves you feeling sort of shitty <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and distracted all the time. And then something like the pandemic happens, and you stop and think of your own mortality, and you're like, is this how I want to be for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Is <laughs> just doing this nonstop? Or do I need like a real change here? And that change yeah. can be your job. It can also just be I think how you you know describe really well, just figuring out how to redirect your attention on a daily basis, just in even small ways. Yeah, totally. Just something that I've observed among people that I know is um, people sort of leaving jobs or contexts, and they don't actually know what's next, but they right. knew enough that it was wrong that they could leave. And I think that's really interesting because more and more lately, I put such a, I really value intuition Mm. um and like intuition versus like the kind of objective like just i don't know i don't even know how to describe it um but like the gut feeling right like the gut feeling when you're on social media too much is this is bad Mm. and it's like how do you learn how to better hear what the that is saying and i think maybe people were following that same intuition of like i'm not happy where i am this isn't fulfilling um, I need to find the things that actually give me some sense of like traction in life. Yeah. 
Uh, last question I ask all of our guests, which was partly inspired by your book. Um, what's your favorite way to unplug right now, uh, now that you're uh, busy writing another book? And and how often do you get to do it? Um, oh, that's hard. I mean, I would say maybe currently it's the loop. The loop? <laughs> it's the loop. I'm going yeah. to look into this loop. I'm, yeah, I'm... <laughs> it's. Uh, I don't think it's very expensive. Um, I think that you can also get magnifying lenses for your phone. Mm, okay. Um, I don't know as much about those, but, um, and I'm very lucky I get to do that every day because every day my boyfriend and I go on basically the same, it's all your pandemic walk. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. like some we variation have, we, of the we've same had, walk. We've had a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it's like the loop, it's so small and it's such a high magnification that like, I'll never be able to like loop everything on this walk like it's endless so uh i think that's my current favorite way but i honestly like so many i mean like bird watching obviously yeah, i'm still right. really into that yeah fantastic <laughs> uh jenny odell thank you so much for uh, for joining offline appreciate the time thanks so much for having me Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Andy Gardner-Bernstein and Austin Fisher. Andrew Chadwick is our audio editor. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Madison Holman, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, and Amelia Montooth, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something you need to get off your chest? What is your outlet for working through the things that stress you out? Uh, you know, I, I do the crossword. That helps. I'm also, I also go to therapy, you know, and I say, uh, this week, I don't want to make any progress. She's like, ugh, that's what you said last week. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA.